Um, so we hope that you will be blessed today as we, as we look at this. Uh, before we dive into God's word, would you please pray with me? Father God, we come before you this morning and uh, we lift this up to you, Father. We give uh, this word to you. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come and that you would speak profoundly into, into our hearts, Lord, that we would leave this place changed and transformed and that our words would fade and that your, your words would come forward, that your gospel would go forward, Lord. Yeah. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you that you're a God of love and connection and of mission who, who has a heart for the lost and the disconnected. And so we pray that that would come through today. So we give this time to you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. 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 Well, in their book, uh, Next Door As It Is In Heaven, authors Lance Ford and Brad Briscoe discuss the profound loneliness people are regularly experiencing in our world and the subsequent and sobering sense that they have very little value at all. And I think, sadly, in our modern age of smartphones and social media, many of us have contributed to the loneliness and lack of self-worth as we move throughout the day, rarely lifting our heads to offer a simple greeting, right? How many of you have ever, uh, you know, walked through a, a, a store and just seen people walking through, texting, and not even looking up? In fact, I've heard rumors that there are laws being passed making it illegal to walk and look at your phone at the same time because people keep running into things. Has everyone ever been guilty of this? Or maybe it's just me, I don't know. Now, when I was younger, I used to go to coffee shops and take in the surroundings, but now if I go and do that today, people think I'm weird uh, if I'm not burying my head in my phone. How many of us have ever felt anxious if we stand in line at a store and immediately feel the need to open up a news app and catch up on the day? We've become, as a society, I would suggest, relationally aloof. And so Ford and Briscoe contrast our relational aloofness with the daily practice that author Peter Seng noticed among the tribes of northern Natal in South Africa. And this is what he writes. He says the most common greeting in that tribe was equivalent to hello in English, and it's the expression sawubona, translated as I see you. Now, if you're a member of the tribe, you might simply reply by saying this, Sikona, I am here. Now, I want you to notice this because the order is important, that until you see me, I do not exist. It's as if when you see me, you literally bring me into existence. And so Ford and Briscoe observe a deep truth resides in this cultural practice, When we merely move throughout our days without seeing people as people, as far as it matters to us in that moment, they really don't exist. We look past them or we don't even acknowledge that they're there. Being conscious of how we approach people we encounter through the normal routines of our day is a step toward bringing, they suggest, heaven here on our patch of earth. Sawubona, I see you. Sakona, I am here. Now that, that concept is simple and yet profound. And unfortunately, I believe too many of us know what it's like to be missed and disconnected. In fact, I wonder how many of us have walked through life feeling like we're not seen. Perhaps you've even walked through church and felt like you weren't noticed, like you weren't connected. And so no one greets you with sawubona. And I suspect if you feel disconnected, you don't feel valued. Now, friends, for the last few weeks, we've been painting a picture of this new vision, expanding the table for the glory of God. 
And what we want to submit to you today is that if we don't understand this concept of sawubona, I see you. In other words, if we don't truly see people, our table will be empty. There will be lots of seats available, but nobody's sitting down. And so today, Pastor Dave and I want to talk with you about the second priority in our strategic plan is the, the priority of connection. Because you see, last week, Dave talked about the grow priority. How do we grow deeper in our relationship with God? Today, we'll talk about connecting new people in. Next week, we'll talk about ACT, uh, the mission priority. Uh, But today's all about connection. And the reality is this, that there are people all around us who are disconnected. They're disconnected from real, authentic, genuine community. And there's many people who are disconnected from God. And so the priority statement that we wrote that's on the screen and it's also on the outlines in your bulletin is this. In the next three years, we will cultivate a welcoming and compelling environment where new guests will be well embraced as family, leading to deeper connection. In other words, we need people, we need to be a people who will say, Sawubona, I see you. And in so doing, we will help people get connected and reconnected as the case may be. And we want to be there for them. But first, let's understand how disconnection happens. And in fact, that's the subject of chapter 15 in the Gospel of Luke. Dave? We've been in Luke 14 in the last couple weeks, and so flip the page over, if you would, and join me in Luke 15. There's a very famous parable there. It's called the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, But it's a great big mistake to think that that parable is just about one son, because how many sons are in that story? There's two. And so this story is about two sons. Just out of curiosity, how many of you in your family, you're the older sibling in your family? Yeah, yeah, okay, good, hands down. How many of you, you're the youngest sibling in your family? All right, yep. And how many of you somewhere in the middle like me? Yep, okay, good. (laughs) The point about me asking that question is for you to realize that there are two different children in the story, and we, as the readers, are meant to compare and contrast them. If we don't do that, we will completely miss the radical point that Jesus is teaching. This parable is so incredible. It really has helped me understand some things that I wouldn't have understand otherwise. Because if you really read this for the way that Jesus told it, you will see that it utterly undermines our existing paradigms and categories that we have for understanding our relationship to God. If I were going to title this story, I would title it The Family That Nobody Wanted to Be In. That seemed like a morbid title for the sermon, so we titled it this, Welcome to the Family, Luke chapter 15. (laughs) This parable has so impacted my life and my understanding of who God is, and so I have seen in my own experience, sometimes I'm like the, the younger brother, and then other times in life I'm like the older brother. And then sometimes in different relationships, I'm kind of both of those things with different relationships in my life. And so uh, there's lessons here for, for both. Now, our, our understanding of this has been greatly impacted by Tim Keller and his book, Prodigal God. Uh, we would recommend picking that up. And anybody who talks about this parable in the 21st century has been influenced by a scholar, Ten- Kenneth Bailey, who's put out some really good work on this in terms of the cultural context. But let's pick it up, Luke chapter 15, and we'll start in verse 1. If you're ready, say amen. amen. Text says this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now let's just pause right there. Because right there in verse 1, I find something that's personally very, very fascinating. And it's this. The people who were least interested in God, 
the people who were least interested in religion, they loved to gather around Jesus and hear him teach. Now, isn't that something? They loved him. They were attracted to him. There was something about him that was so full of mercy, so full of grace, and so full of truth that they loved to gather around him and hear his words. And so if you're one of those people who doesn't really like church or doesn't really like church people, uh, let me just assure you that Jesus would like you and that you would like him. And so let's just take a moment and just see if we can draw out a lesson for us as a church here. In terms of our Connect priority, here's the kind of church that we want to be. We want to be a church that is able to retain first-time guests by creating new and inviting spaces and focusing on hospitality. In other words, we want to create a church environment where people feel welcome and connected and able to explore who Jesus is here in our context. Andy Stanley says it this way, the church should be a family expecting guests. Now think about that. You as a family, what do you do when you're expecting guests over your home? Well, if you're like me, it takes some time to to prepare your home for the guests. Like it or not, we are trying to create a church environment when people come to visit our church home, and when they do come, whether we like it or not, they will make decisions based on their first impression about whether or not they'll come back to us as a church. They may make that decision in the parking lot before they ever get here and say, wow, there's no spaces in this church. Maybe they'll make that decision over in the kids' area as they drop off their children. Maybe they'll make it in the foyer or perhaps in the sanctuary. They will make up their decision as to whether or not they want to come back here as to whether or not we are a welcoming church for them. Now, you might say, well, wait, that's not really fair. Give us some more time. Well, you're right, it's not really fair, but that just is the way it is. People will make up their mind based on their first impression. And so the challenge for us today is how can we create an environment for people that are disconnected from God and disconnected from church and create a space for them to be welcome here like Jesus did. Going back to the parable, all these people are gathered around Jesus to hear him teach, but the religious people, if you noticed, were not that happy about that. They were upset by the crowd, and Jesus knows that. And so as a result, Jesus decides to tell a parable. Actually, he decides to tell three parables uh, consecutively. Now, a parable is just a made-up story to make a point. A parable is just a made-up story to teach us something that's true. Jesus' parables are very brilliant. Watch how he draws in his audience. First, he tells this story about a lost sheep. And he says, if you lose a sheep, wouldn't you leave the rest of your sheep to go after and look for the one and find it? Now, that might not seem like a natural response at first, but Jesus would say, well, isn't that the right thing to do? Uh, can we agree on that, Pharisees? Wouldn't you agree that that's the right thing to do? Oh, well, yeah. Okay, tax collectors and sinners, would you also be willing to agree that that's the right thing to do? Yeah, okay. Everybody on the same page about this? Yeah, we can all agree. Then he tells a second story. And this story is a little bit different. He says, What if there was a lost coin and a woman was looking for that coin and she cleaned out her whole house and she uh, finally found it? And again, the point is very similar. Don't you get a whole lot of energy around something that's lost and trying to find that? And aren't you full of joy and happy when you do find it? Can we agree about that, Pharisees? You guys on the same page over here? Yep. How about you, tax collectors and sinners? Would you agree about that? Yep. Everybody's on the same page here. We all get a lot of energy around finding stuff that's lost. And so there's a lot of similarities between those first two parables. Uh, They're both about something that's being lost, and they're both about the joy of being found. Now, the other thing about these stories is that they're both about you and I, right? Like the sheep, we've all wandered away, and like the coin, we've all slipped out of the hand. 
But it's this third story that's so different from the first two, and that's the one we, we want to look at very closely, the one about the lost son. And so the third story begins like this in verse 11. It says, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. Now, if you were a father in the time and you had two sons and you died, then your estate would have been divided like this. Two-thirds would have gone to the older son and one-third would have gone to the younger son because the older son always gets a double portion. And those of you that are the eldest siblings say amen, right? (laughs) Now, reading this today, we may miss this, but the original listeners of this story would have been amazed at this younger son's request. It was unthinkable back then. Now, just think about this. Basically, what the younger son is saying to the father is is this. Dad, I know that you are going to die, and when you die, I'm going to get a lot of money, and it's going to be great, and there's just one problem, Dad, you won't die. And frankly, I'm tired of waiting around for you to die. So, Dad, can we just pretend like you're dead already? And I can just have all your stuff, Dad. Now, you chuckle, but in, listen, in that day and age, it was shocking, and probably was even shocking to many of us. I mean, what kind of son would say or do that? And everyone know, everyone would be like, wow, the dad is not the one who's going to die right now. It's probably going to be the son who's going to die, and soon. Because who would have had the audacity to request that? But do you see what's happening here? See, Jesus told us this story in order for us to understand the severity of sin, Because for many of us, we think sin is just an honest mistake. We think sin is blowing it or or it's doing something bad. But hey, nobody's perfect, right? But Jesus said, no, it's much worse than that. Sin is wishing God were dead, is what he's saying. That's what sin is. Sin is wishing God were not part of your life at all. Sin is saying, God, get out of my face. Get out of my life. Just give me your stuff, God. I hate you looking over my shoulder all the time. I'm leaving. And so the point here is this, friends, that we are disconnected, yes, but Jesus is saying that the reason why we are disconnected is because we have left. You see, the great sin here is that the younger son wants the father's things, but doesn't want the father. He wants the father's wealth, his estate, the comfort and the prestige, the independence that goes with those things, but he doesn't want the father. And so the original listeners would have been shocked and offended, and rightly so, but it gets even more shocking next because even more amazing than the son's request was the father's response. Now, an ancient Middle Eastern father would have been expected to drive his boy out of the house at this time, probably with a beating. But he didn't do that. Look at how the father responds. He's been insulted. He's been humiliated in front of the entire village. And what does he do? The text simply says this. He divided his wealth between them. He grants the request. He gives him his share of the inheritance. See, the father doesn't respond in kind. When insulted, he doesn't retaliate. Despite the murderous thoughts of his son, despite the public humiliation he's undergoing, he lets his son go. And why? Because perhaps the father knows that if if he is to have his son, he knows he must have him for the right reason. The son has to love the father. So he lets him go. Dave? 
Now, the only way to really be able to give the younger son his share of the estate at that time would be for the father to liquidate all of his assets. And so that's actually what the younger son is asking. Yeah, I know it's kind of a hassle to sell everything that we have and uh, give me my share, but dad, could you just do that? Now, friends, in those days, probably like today, a man's identity was bound up in what he owned, and it was bound up in his land. It was bound up in, in his estate. If you lost that, then you lost your sense of self. You lost your sense of status in the community. And so what the younger son is asking the dad to do is to tear his whole life apart. In fact, that word wealth there is our word, uh, the Greek word bios, where we get our word biology from. It means life. He's asking him to tear his life apart, to tear apart his standing in the community, to tear himself apart. And that's just what the father does. So he divided his wealth between them. Verse 13 says this. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. The son takes his share and and goes off and he squanders everything that his dad has given him. 14. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, but no one was giving anything to him. So here's this younger son. Now he's down and out. Literally, uh, he's in the pigsty. Now, remember, Jesus' audience at that time was Jewish. And so they would have heard that and everybody would have gone, oh, pigs? No. But isn't that an interesting picture of sin? You see, sometimes when I sin, I think, well, this is, you know, pleasurable. But in reality, Jesus says, no, no, no. It's like eating with the pigs. That's what you're doing. And then it says this in verse 17. But when he came to his senses, do you see that? He has this moment right here. There's this point in his life, and I think a lot of us can relate to this, where there comes a time in life after we rebel and we figure out life isn't really working this way. And in that moment, we're faced with this choice, and the choice is just simply this. I can either come to my senses and go back to my father, or I can stay where I am and eat with the pigs. That's the choice. I can either come to my senses and go back to the father, or I can stay where I am and eat with the pigs. That's the decision. So he comes to his senses and it says this. And he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I'm dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. Now notice The son comes up with a speech. The son comes up with a plan. And the plan is, I will go say to my father, make me like one of your hired men. What he's actually saying there is he wants to pay the father back. Do you see that? He wants to make restitution. I want to earn my way back. That's the plan. Now, meanwhile, his father wasn't unaware of this. In fact, he probably heard word that what, of what his son was doing. There's probably rumors going around, you know, your son's getting into trouble, and your son's getting drunk, your son's running around with loose women, and, 
You know, he's at that party, he's getting into debt, all this kind of stuff the father was probably hearing. And don't you know, and again, if you're, if you're a parent, if you've got a father or mother's heart, don't you know there was everything in him, in the father, that wanted to intervene? Don't you know that he wanted to put a stop to everything? Don't you know how frustrated he must have felt? Maybe you resonate with that. I mean, how would you feel if this, this son of yours all of a sudden came down the road? Maybe you'd be sitting there indignant going, it's about time. It's about time. <laughs> I mean, this son has done great harm to your family. Isn't enough enough, right? Or you might see him coming and you might be thinking, well, this speech better be good, right? Yeah. But what does the story say? It says, but, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Wow. He runs to his son. The father shows complete emotional abandon. He kisses him. He falls on his neck. The father had been patiently waiting for this day for a long time. I mean, just patiently waiting, thinking, wondering if today, if today was going to be the day. I wonder if today, he's thinking, is going to be the day when he comes to his senses and comes home. I wonder if today is going to be the day when he wakes up and says, wait a minute, wait a minute, a bad day in my father's house is better than a good day in sin. I wonder if today is going to be the day. Could it be today? Not today, maybe tomorrow, not tomorrow, maybe the next day. Every day he's looking. Is he coming? Is he in the distance? And finally he sees him, and on that day, what does he do? He runs to his son and embraces him. Now, friends, do you realize what Jesus is saying here? He's saying that is what your heavenly father is like. That's what God is like. And that's so important for us to know because maybe in some way you feel like you've run away from God in your life and you've done some things you're not proud of, and maybe you wonder, what does God think of me? And friends, here's your answer. Did it ever cross your mind that God feels compassion for you? Did it ever cross your mind that God loves you? Because you see, Jesus tells the story this way because he knows what we expect. He knows that whenever and wherever this story is told, whether it's in the 21st century or the 1st century, whether it's in the USA or Bangladesh, we expect God to look at our performance, grade us, and respond in kind. It's justice that we expect from God, not mercy. It's wages we expect, not grace. But Jesus tells this story to clarify our misconception of God, and Jesus says, wrong, You don't get it. You don't know my father. He's not like that. My father is not an unforgiving tyrant. He is a God of compassion and mercy, slow to anger. And he is just like the father in the story, running out to meet us wherever we are as we come home. And here's our point today. We want to be a church like that. In other words, we want to embrace newcomers as family, and so our second strategy is this. We want to develop new and build out existing opportunities for relational connection. In other words, we want to be like this father who ran out of his home to meet his son. So the father embraces him, 
And then the son starts with the speech. Notice 21. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The son starts to roll out the plan. But what I want you to notice here in the text is that the father will have nothing of it. The father interrupts him mid-sentence. Your whole speech, irrelevant. Look at the next verse. It says, but the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. A new robe to wear. Sandals, which were significant because it shows that the son will not be a slave in the house. He will be reinstated as a son. The ring would be the family signet ring. That's what you would use to sign a deal for the family. Very important back then. Today we sign our name to make something official, but back then they would have these family rings to seal deals. And so what you need to see here is that with one swooping gesture, the father has reinstated his son back into the family. You see that? I want you to notice something. Remember, the son's plan was, I want to earn my way back. But the father says, I'm not going to let you earn your way back. I'm going to bring you back by sheer grace. Do you see that? You see, the scripture teaches us that we cannot earn our way back to God. If we are to come back, it must be by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Look at what the father says in verse 23. He goes on, and bring out the fattened calf. Kill that sucker and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And so they began to celebrate. So what do we learn here? From the first son, what we learn is that some people are a lot like this younger brother. They want their independence. They want to live their lives apart from their heavenly father's jurisdiction. And so the way in which they pursue happiness in life and satisfaction in life and fulfillment in life is they do that through self-expression, through rebellion, and through licentious living. But then there comes a time where you realize that is so empty. And if that's you, God says, I want you to come back home. And here we learn that if we do come home, then God will love us and accept us back into his family, and we can come back to the table. But listen carefully. He won't let you earn your way back. If you want to be back in this family, he offers it to you as a gift on his terms. Yes, you can come, but you must come with humility. You must do what it says in Proverbs 28. He who conceals his sins does not prosper. But whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Now we hear this story and it seems very sentimental and it it seems quite beautiful. But the original hearers would have been incensed. This story doesn't make any rational sense. I mean, what Jesus is saying here is that everything you've learned about God and everything you've thought about God and everything that you think you know about how to approach God is wrong. Now, almost everyone thinks this is where the story ends because it seems like the story is resolved, right? But not so fast. There, because it's here in the story that we meet another character. 
because a bigger problem arises when the father throws this feast. And so Jesus continues in verse 25, now his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, well, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in, that is the older son. Now, you don't need a license in marriage and family counseling to recognize that this was one of the greatest days in the father's life. It's obvious, right? The whole community would have been there. And in those days, they didn't eat meat like we did. I mean, it was very sparing. They didn't eat very often. Meat was a delicacy. And so when the father kills the fattened calf, We can assume the entire village will be present and watching what's happening. And the elder brother knew that, but he doesn't care. It doesn't matter to him because he's upset, particularly about the cost of this meal. And so he refuses to participate. And now it is his turn to insult the integrity of the family. And he's doing it in front of the whole village. Because everyone would see that there was an empty chair at the table, and they would know how humiliating it was because once again, not just once, but for the second time, all the family's dirty laundry would be aired out for everyone to see. And so the text says this, and, it, and his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, look, which was quite a disrespectful way to speak to your father then and now. For so many years, Dad, I've been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But this son of yours, notice that he doesn't say my brother, he won't even acknowledge that he's in the same family, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him, Dad? This son of yours has ruined everything. Why are we celebrating this anyway? That's a good good question. I mean, just think about it in a modern context. Let's say you have a friend, and this friend has a son, and the son has all kinds of problems. Maybe he's got addiction problems. And let's say he's been in and out of rehab, but he never really fully gets it. And let's say that one time the son left. And on his way out the door, your friend's son took a bunch of his parents' money. And nobody's heard anything from this son for, let's say, like, I don't know, two years. And then, out of nowhere, you get a call from your friend. And he says, hey, my son just came home today. We're going to have a big party. We're going to have a party today. I want you to come on over. Now, aren't you going to say, well, wait a minute. Aren't we moving a little fast here? Is he even sorry? Is this something we really want to celebrate? I mean, what did he do right? He got some prostitutes, he drank, he ran out of money. Why are we celebrating this? Aren't we enabling wrong behavior here? What about restitution? What about earning his way back? You know, can you feel the tension in the story? Furthermore, the older brother says, I don't get it. I've been working hard, slaving for you. I've never disobeyed your commands. And you never even gave me a young goat to celebrate with my friends. And the father says, Well, son, you don't have any friends. Let me explain why. Because your self-righteousness and your pride has alienated you and isolated you from others. 
You see, that's what self-righteousness will do. And we need to understand why this older brother is so mad. The older brother is the only heir left in the family. In a sense, that means the older brother is the one who stands to inherit every ring, every robe, and every fattened calf. And so here at this party, all the older brother can really see is his own share of the estate diminishing by the moment. And he's angry. And here we realize this son has the same problem as the younger son. This son only cares about the father's things too. But he doesn't care about the father. This son cares about the father's wealth. But he doesn't care about the father's heart. And so once again, the the father pleads for this son to come to the table and be part of the family. Look at 31. He said to him, son, you've always been with me. And all that is mine is yours. We had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours. Notice the language. He was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Now, I just want you to notice one word on the screen there. That is the word with right there. You see that word? That is very important because that's the issue as far as the father is concerned. You've always been with me. To the father, that's what matters. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You're saying with is more important than do? You're saying with is more important than works? You're saying with is what really matters? Hmm. And here's the point we're trying to make today as a church. This whole idea of being with, this whole idea of connection is very important to our God and as a result should be very important to us as well. And therefore we want it to be important for our church to create an environment of connection and reconnection for those who want to come home. Because to our God, the most important thing is with. Now, that's where the story ends. It's a bit of a cliffhanger, but we should ask, what do we learn here? And we learn, friends, that there's two different kinds of disconnection. See, the first son is a typical depiction of sin. He's insulting the father, he's down in the pigsty, he's licentious, lustful, down in the gutter. That's how we usually recognize sin, right? The younger son is lost, he's alienated. But friends, the second son is alienated from God as well, from the father as well. Because he thinks he's been so obedient. He thinks he's been so faithful. He tried to do the right thing and the holier he got, actually the angrier he got. And he doesn't like people who haven't worked as hard as him to get something good. He's angry. He's self-righteous. He's full of pride and he's selfish too. Yes, the younger son surrendered his soul to his passions, but the older son surrendered his soul to his pride. Sometimes in our families, even depending on your birth order, these are reversed. But these are types. The younger son surrendered his soul to his passions, but the older son surrendered his soul to his pride. We can play both sides sometimes, right? In his own way, the older son is using his father too. And some people may be disconnected because they have an elder brother type of heart, even if they're the younger brother. 
But you see, if in your heart of hearts you say, God, I serve you, I pray, I do what's right, and therefore you owe it to me, God, to take me to heaven when I die. See, as long as I get what I want, I really don't, and I really don't care about other people. It, if that's you, then Jesus is not your Savior and Lord. Because all your morality and all your religion is just your way of getting what you really want. And if that's us, we're lost too. And so to the older brothers out there, Jesus says, why don't you humble yourself in my sight? Why don't you stop taking the place of God? There's only one God. Why don't you stop looking down on other people? Because if your standards are higher than God's standards, then that's a dangerous place to be because that's exactly what Satan did. Stop your self-righteous attitude. Jesus says, as the song goes, lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him and him alone, gloriously complete. As Tim Keller says, Jesus taught that we not only need to repent of our sins, but we also need to repent of the very reasons why we obey. We not only need to repent of our sins, but we also need to repent of the very reasons why we Obey, because you see, both sons were lost, and they both were using the father to their own selfish ends. Keller goes on, he says, one has been doing it by being very, very bad, but the other has been doing it by being very, very good. See, the younger brother was trying to get control by leaving and disobeying, but the older brother was trying to get control by staying and obeying. And Jesus is showing us here that both were disconnected, that both were without a relationship with the Father, and both need to repent. Now, why are we telling you this? It's because our prayer is that as a church, we would be more like the Father than like the sons. That when people come into our doors, may we welcome them with open arms. But if we are focused on our selfish desires like the younger brother, we won't love people well. And if we judge people like the older brother, we'll drive people away. No, God says, be like me. Welcome the lost and disconnected and offer them a seat at my table. At this point, let's remember who these two sons represent. Do you remember back in verse 1 that there was two groups of people that gathered around Jesus to hear him teach this parable? You remember on the one hand, you had the Pharisees and the scribes? And then on the other hand, you had the tax collectors and, and the sinners. These two sons here are meant to represent those two people. They represent the two ways for all of us, really. Jesus says there are two different ways that you can get disconnected. The first way is the way of license. The second way, though, is the way of legalism. On the one hand, you could get disconnected through rebellion, On the other hand, you could get disconnected through rule-keeping. Jesus says both of those ways are wrong. In the story, God has to go out to both sons. And both sons need to come back to his table. See, God wants our obedience just to enjoy intimacy with him. You, You go to God not to get his things. You go to God to get God. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God. And to the extent that you understand that, to the degree that you comprehend that, that will change your paradigm 
of how you approach God and how you think about God. And if you truly understood the point of this parable, you would no longer be like either one of these sons in this story. You won't openly want to rebel because you know the place where you really belong is at the table with the family. And you won't judge and be self-righteous, obeying God just to get his stuff. Instead, you will simply obey God to get God, and then you'll be a Christian. Final point. How is this possible? How is it possible to actually get a seat back at the table? How is it possible to be reconciled to God and his family? And the only way to understand that is to understand the third son in this story. Now, you might be looking down at your Bible going, third son? I thought there was two sons in this story. Where's the third son? Who is the third son? Well, he's the one telling the story. See, the third son is the one revealing the father's heart towards sinners. I want you to remember that this story is about three parables. The first is about a lost sheep. And the shepherd goes out to find it and bring it home. The second parable is about a lost coin. And someone goes out to find it and gets it back. But the third parable is about a lost son. And did you notice that nobody goes out to get him back? See, Jesus tells the story this way for us to think about it. Because who is it that should have gone to get the younger brother? Anyone in that culture would have known that it was the older brother's job That it was his job to keep the family together, to keep the family a family. And so a good older brother would come to the father and say, Dad, I'm going to go get my little brother, even if it's a great cost to myself. And that's the key to understanding this whole parable, because after the younger brother left and took his share of the inheritance, the rest belonged to the older brother. So in a sense, every ring, every fattened calf, every robe belongs to the older brother. Do you see that? And so when the father brings the younger brother back to the family, he can only do that, how? At the expense of the older brother. But in this story, the older brother doesn't care, and he doesn't want to pay. And so the younger brother gets a Pharisee for an older brother. And so Jesus puts a bad older brother in this story so that we would long for a good one. Because we, the human race, long for and need a true older brother. And we don't just need an older brother who would go searching for us in the next town. We need an older brother who would come from heaven to earth. We need an older brother who's willing to pay the cost. We need an older brother who's willing to pay the price to bring us back to the table and bring us into the family of God. And ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, this is the good news of the gospel. There is such an older brother. And he is the one who said, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. Don't you see? There is one willing to pay the cost. There is one willing to bring us back. There is one willing to pay the price. And he laid it down, dying on the cross for our sins, rising for our justification, securing for us a seat at the table, showing us the wide open arms of our loving Heavenly Father. That's good news. So to sum everything up, church, we are called to be like the true older brother. Now how do we do that? 
Well, we would suggest that it is when we are willing to incur great personal cost to ourselves that new people are welcome to the table. When we lay aside our preferences and desires for the sake of welcoming others, the family will grow and the table will be expanded. And so here's our final strategy. We want to move individuals from the community to the crowd to the core by helping them become a servant leader within the church. In other words, we here as servant leaders, we want to, what we want to do is we want to see people who are far from God, completely disconnected, get not only reconnected with him through our church, but then we want to see them turn around and reach back and help others as well by moving them through the process of becoming a servant leader. And how do we do that? Well, we do that by becoming like the true older brother Jesus, by following the Father's example and welcoming the lost and disconnected with open arms. And yes, this comes with a cost for us, but we believe it's worth it. Because here's an important point we want to remind you again and again, that all three of these parables are about something that's lost, but they're also about the joy of something that's found. And we want to be a church that finds joy right here, because if we stay focused on the vision, if we really want to expand the table for the glory of God, and if we get serious about being, a help, being about helping people reconnect, then we believe this will bring our church great joy. Amen. I'd like to invite the band to come up. They have one more song for us today. And as they're coming, let me remind you of the flip side. The churches who lose their focus on vision tend to become very inwardly focused. And when churches become inwardly focused, what happens is the joy runs out, and they begin obsessing and fighting over the smallest things, and that's because they've forgotten the main thing, that lost people matter to God, and they ought to matter to us. And so we want this to be our greatest joy, found in helping disconnected people get reconnected with God and finding a seat at his table, because that is where true joy is. That's what we want to be about as a church. But we can't be that type of church unless we're that type of people. And so as we close, just imagine, if we were a church that found this priority to be really true, imagine a church which always says, Sawubona, I see you. To each person who walked through these doors, do you think anybody would notice? Well, we believe they would. We believe people would even respond with, Sikona, I am here. I am here, seated at the table with you and me. And as a result, God's table will be expanded for his glory. Amen. Dave, would you pray for us? Can we pray?